Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode 26 of the UK's only Freedom of Information podcast. I'm Ibrahim Hassan. In this episode, I discuss FOI developments and decisions during the six months ending in August 2011. This includes commissioner and tribunal decisions on when information is held under FOI, vexatious requests, personal data and statistics, disclosure of salaries, deceased persons' information, and Section 43 and disclosure of contracts. There is still a lack of awareness of the Data Protection Act and the Freedom of Information Act amongst school staff and governors. This is despite the fact that every school is covered in its own right by each piece of legislation. In April, Freehold Community School in Oldham was found to have breached the Data Protection Act after the theft of an unencrypted laptop from a teacher's car. An undertaking to comply with the seventh data protection principle, security, has also been signed recently by Bayhouse School after the personal details of 20,000 individuals, including some 7,600 pupils, were put at risk during a hacking attack on its website. In May, Aberdare Girls' School signed an undertaking to improve its freedom of information practices following the ICO's concerns over its refusal to disclose information under FOI. This related to the legal costs and advice sought over the exclusion of a former pupil who refused to remove a religious bangle. Not only should schools comply themselves with information legislation, the Information Commissioner's Office says that the importance of data privacy and access to official information should be embedded into the formal education process. In August, the ICO launched a research project to explore ways of getting information rights covered in primary and secondary schools in the UK. The project aims to ensure that young people are aware of the threats to their privacy and how to protect themselves. It will also explore how young people can be encouraged to exploit the increasing availability of public information to their advantage. Now's the time to raise awareness of information law issues amongst school staff and governors. Act Now Training offers a full range of services to schools, including training on data protection and freedom of information, as well as compliance audits and online seminars. For full details, see our website, which is www.actnow.org.uk. What is the test to be applied when deciding whether information is held for the purposes of FOI by a public authority? Section 3.2 of the Act states, Information is held by a public authority if it is held by the authority otherwise than on behalf of another person, or it is held by another person on behalf of the authority. In episode 20, we discussed the first-tier tribunal decision in British Union for the abolition of vivisection and the information commissioner at Newcastle University. The university's appeal against the decision of the tribunal has now been heard by the upper tribunal. The background to the case is that in June 2008, the British Union submitted a request to the university for the information set out in the project licences issued under the Animal Scientific Procedures Act, which governed the primate research at the university, which had been written up in three published scientific papers. Amongst other things, the university argued that it did not hold the licences. It said that they were held by the named veterinary surgeon pursuant to his role under the Animal Scientific Procedures Act. The upper tribunal has now upheld the decision of the first-tier tribunal that the information was held by the university for FOI purposes. 
it approved the first-tier tribunal's reasoning in respect of Section 3.2 that the effect of this subsection is to confirm the inclusion of information within the scope of FOI which might otherwise have been arguably outside it. The effect of paragraph A is that information held by the authority on behalf of another is outside Section 1 only if it is held solely on behalf of the other. If the information is held to any extent on behalf of the authority, then the authority itself holds the information within the meaning of the Act. The effect of paragraph B is that the authority holds information in the relevant sense even when physically someone else holds it on the authority's behalf. The tribunal stated that hold is an ordinary English word, it is not to be used in some technical sense within the Act. Sophisticated legal analysis of its meaning is not required or appropriate. In general, said the upper tribunal, authorities should base their cases to withhold information on the exemptions rather than technical arguments as to whether the information is held under Section 3.2. Over the years, many public authorities, especially councils, have entered into outsourcing, partnering and private finance initiative arrangements with the private sector to deliver capital projects and to run services. These are often the subject of complex freedom of information requests. Sometimes the contractor will hold the requested information and the public authority will have access to it, but on restricted terms. The question arises as to who holds the information for the purposes of FOI. In Allen Dransfield and the Information Commissioner and Devon County Council, the appellant made a request for an operations manual for a school which was built and maintained by a private company under a PFI arrangement with the council. The contract between the parties required the company to maintain and update the manual and give access upon request to the council to demonstrate that it had complied with this obligation. The contract also contained a strict confidentiality clause preventing the parties and their employees from disclosing anything within the contract and the project documents. The council submitted that the operating manual was held by the contractor and so was not subject to FOI. It was entitled to access the document for the sole purpose of determining whether the contractor had complied with his obligations with respect to the compilation and maintenance of the document. It was not entitled to a copy, and the confidentiality clause meant that it could not disseminate the information within it. Furthermore, the Council had no input into generating the information, no control over it, and no right to deal with it in any way. The Tribunal agreed with these submissions, it ruled that the Council did not hold the requested information and has not held it at any relevant date and therefore it was not obliged to make it available to the appellant under FOI. It noted that after 2033 the position will change when the Council will have direct responsibility for the school and will then have a full right of access to the information. It will then hold the information for FOI purposes. This decision clarifies the question of applicability of FOI to information held by contractors under PFI arrangements. In any particular case, care will have to be taken to examine the precise nature of the requested information, the basis upon which it is held, and also what rights of access the public authority has to it, and to disclose it further. There is now a fair amount of jurisprudence on what constitutes a vexatious request under Section 14.1 of the Act. The Tribunal has previously approved the Information Commissioner's guidance on this subject, which was last updated in December 2008.
Duke and the Information Commissioner at the University of Salford is the first appeal against a public authority that decided to refuse requests in the wider context of a substantial number of FOI requests being received during a specific period but from different people. The public authority believed that the requests were to a significant degree associated with each other. It is the FOI equivalent of concluding that these multiple associated requests amount, in effect, to a denial-of-service attack in internet terms. The appellant, a dismissed former employee, was believed to be behind a concerted campaign of FOI requests to the university. Between 2009 and February 2010, the university received over 100 requests submitted by 13 individuals, mostly via the whatdotheyknow.com website. Some of the requests had been made under pseudonyms. Compare these figures to those for the whole of 2008 when the university had received 117 requests submitted by 78 different requesters. The appellant and other requesters also distributed satirical literature and maintained websites critical of the university. In the light of the context of the appellant's requests and his concerted campaign, together with others, the tribunal upheld the ICO's findings. It's interesting to note that the tribunal and the commissioner gave weight to the fact that the first request, which started everything off, and many of the subsequent requests were made via the whatdotheyknow.com website. Whilst this in itself cannot be evidence of someone being vexatious, the tribunal seems to have concluded that the purpose of using the site was to encourage associates of the appellant to make requests. So whilst whatdotheyknow.com is still a legitimate way of making FOI requests, Public authorities who are inundated with requests from different people via the same site may wish to check the site to see if there is any explicit or implicit encouragement to others by the requester to make requests and if there is any upsurge in requests as a result. These issues may, in the light of this case, be legitimately be taken into account in deciding whether any request is vexatious. Section 40 often comes into play when public authorities receive requests for disclosure of statistics. There have been a number of decisions on this issue. The Commissioner has always maintained that truly anonymised statistics are not personal data and so the Section 40 exemption for third-party personal data cannot be used. The test of whether statistics are truly anonymised is whether members of the public could reasonably identify the subjects by cross-referencing them with information or knowledge already available to them or which they could easily obtain. On the 20th of April of this year, the long-awaited judgment in the abortion statistics appeal was handed down. The Department of Health refused a request for detailed statistics on the number of late-term abortions carried out on prescribed grounds. It relied on Section 40, basing its case on the risk that, given the low cell counts in these categories, the relevant patients and or doctors might be identified by those sufficiently motivated to do so. The Commissioner found that these statistics were not personal data, but the Information Tribunal agreed with the Department that they did constitute personal data, but was not satisfied that Section 40 was effective, as there was insufficient risk of identification. On the Department's appeal to the High Court, the judge agreed with the Commissioner that the statistics are not personal data. The judgment is interesting to those who want to understand better the concept and extent of personal data under Section 40 as well as under the Data Protection Act, especially when looking at the grey area of statistics or other anonymous data which is rooted in or derived from other data which is more overtly personal.
The judgment is also essential reading for anyone grappling with the application of the leading House of Lords decision on this subject, Commons Services Agency and the Scottish Information Commissioner, which we discussed in episode 20. In June, the Information Commissioner ordered the Cabinet Office to disclose the names of 24 public sector workers who earn more than £150,000. This followed a request for information to the Cabinet Office, who had previously withheld the information on the basis that the individuals did not consent to their details being released, and so the disclosure would breach one of the data protection principles, and so was exempt under Section 40, Subsection 2. Where the data subject has not expressed consent to the disclosure of their personal data, the Commissioner's guidance states that he will consider the following principles when considering fairness. First of all, non-expression of consent is not absolutely determinative as to whether the data subject's personal data will be disclosed. And secondly, it also remains important to still consider whether it would be reasonable for the data subject to object to the disclosure. The Commissioner noted in this case that the information disclosed would not reveal the exact salary paid. He went on to state that those who receive some of the highest salaries in the public sector should expect a certain amount of information on their public or work life to be made public, including details of their remuneration. Public policy has been clearly articulated in greater transparency terms for public expenditure for the last few years. He found that there's a widespread expectation that those earning over £150,000 in the public sector will be named as earning over that amount. He ruled that the disclosure was fair and lawful and any expectation of privacy on the parts of the subject were not reasonable. Access to information about the deceased requires application of the Section 41 exemption, breach of confidence. The leading tribunal decision on this issue, Bluck and the Information Commissioner and St. Helier University NHS Trust, decided in September 2007, concerned the disclosure of medical records to the deceased mother without the consent of the deceased husband. The trust decision to deny access was based on Section 41 that a duty of confidence was owed to the deceased, and this was upheld by the Commissioner and the Tribunal. Both ruled that the duty of confidentiality extends beyond death. If the information was disclosed, there was, in theory at least, an actionable breach of confidence which would allow the personal representatives of the deceased to sue the trust. In a recent tribunal decision, O'Hara and the Information Commissioner decided on the 30th of March, the question was whether the Ministry of Defence was entitled to refuse the appellant's request for information about a particular member of the armed forces who died in 1943 on the grounds that it was exempt by virtue of Section 41. The information which the MOD withheld was the subject's occupation prior to joining the armed forces, his home address, the name and address and relationship of his next of kin, any information relating to the medical boards attended by the subject and the subject's religion. The Commissioner, following the Bluck decision, was satisfied that any information about the subject's medical boards constituted confidential information that had been obtained from him in circumstances giving rise to an obligation of confidence and that the legal right of action to prevent its unauthorised disclosure would have survived the subject's death. Therefore, it was exempt under Section 41. Disclosure would be an actionable breach of confidence. When assessing the rest of the withheld information, the Commissioner acknowledged that it was not as sensitive as medical information and that in some respects it might be regarded as innocuous, particularly as 60 years had passed since the subject's death 
by the time the request for information was made. However, the commissioner concluded that it would have been of significant personal significance to the subject still to be treated as confidential and had been acquired by the MOD in circumstances giving rise to an obligation of confidence. To the extent that it was necessary to prove detriment in the case of personal information, the commissioner considered that the loss of privacy itself satisfied the requirement. The tribunal agreed with the commissioner's approach and upheld the decision on the same grounds. The Section 43 exemption, commercial interests, is usually considered when a request is made for contracts or agreements. The public authority often argues that disclosure of all or some of the information would harm its or its contractors' commercial interests. This usually involves a line-by-line analysis of long and complex contracts and spending time and resources on considering the prejudicial effect of disclosure. In March, Channel 4 argued before the first-tier tribunal that where the substantial parts of a long and detailed contract are exempt under Section 43, then the whole of the contract is exempt. The tribunal rejected all of Channel 4's arguments in support of this position and said that the established approach, which required clause-by-clause consideration of the exemptions, is the correct one. That concludes Episode 26 of the UK's Only Freedom of Information podcast. The next podcast will be in January 2012. Before then, you can always catch up on the latest developments in information law by attending one of my full-day FOI update workshops or attending one of my online web seminars. Both carry CPD credits and details are available on our website www.actnow.org.uk. Don't forget, ActNow is one of the UK's leading providers of courses leading to the ICEB Certificate in Freedom of Information. The next course starts in November in London. Again, more details on our website. ActNow Training also offers an FOI helpline service. This is designed to supplement your internal FOI expertise by acting as a sounding board or signpost service for you to discuss your FOI and EIR requests and possible responses. Through the helpline, I will be available to guide you through the relevant area of law, discuss possible exemptions and how to deal with any complaints. At a time of increasing pressure on public sector budgets, the Act Now Freedom of Information helpline is the most cost-effective solution for your FOI problems. Thank you for listening, and until the next time, goodbye.